The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ruth, entitled, The Broken Road to Glory. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley, barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will n- is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City. And we've got a lot of work to do and not a lot of time to do it in, so I'm going to get moving. Um, First off, what an amazing display of the gospel we got to witness this morning, these Children that were baptized haven't had the opportunity to express their faith yet. It's the sheer grace of God that they're with us this morning. And that's just a clear reminder for all of us that our wills and our desires and our actions aren't the things that bring us to God. It's uh, we're brought to God by the sheer grace of God. We all come into his kingdom like these helpless babies. And uh, it's just a gift to celebrate uh, infant baptism this morning. And I also want to make you aware of another gift that we uh, 
get to celebrate next week. Uh, Rob Spikstra, the man who just did the baptizing and the one who preached for me last week, uh, will be getting installed as a pastor slash elder next week in the Sunday gathering. Yeah, so just to let you know, okay. Rob has been going through the elder development process for the past 16 months. And this past Monday, the elders of Sacred City met with him and his wife, Tamara, for a couple hours for an assessment. And we have unanimously approved to install him as elder pastor. Well, that, that was actually before he messed up the Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> so. That was 16 months. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of thought that was step one. But all right, we got it. <clears throat> so don't miss next week. It is a big, big deal for Rob and his family. It's a big deal for us as a church family. Um, if you didn't know, pastor, elder, those words, those are basically a, synonymous. That word, those words are synonymous for the same office in the Bible. The, the office of elder and the office of pastor are one. So we get to celebrate that next week. Uh, now let me pray. We're going to jump into it. We've got a lot of work to do and a very kind of crazy text this morning. So, Father, <clears throat> first off, I just want to acknowledge your goodness Acknowledge your mercy, acknowledge your grace that we are, that you've gone before us here in this gathering, that you are here, you brought people here, you've brought us here, you've kept us safe, you woke us up with new mercies this morning, you met us in your worship, we met, you met us in the liturgy, you met us in the baptism, and now we ask that you would meet us in your word. Father, I am not a man up to the task of preaching this text this morning. I need the grace of God, I need the spirit of God to go before me to literally think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords to help us hear your, your words and not my own words, not my opinion. Would you cut through all the garbage, all the baggage that we bring to the table? Would you cut through it? Would you pierce our heart? Would your word divide soul and spirit? Would your, your word just get in so deep, hit us in the, in the core of who we are? Speak true truth to us. Would you do this for your glory and our good this morning, Father? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we are studying the third chapter in the book of Ruth this morning. Now, just a reminder, this small book is in a genre called historical narrative. That means it's a work of both history and good storytelling. So these events that we are, we've been reading about, these are events that actually happened. They are real people living in the real world about 3,000 years ago in ancient Judah. Now that's important for us. <clears throat> but it's also a story. And with any good story, there are plots and there are subplots, right? If you think of Lord of the Rings, the plot is about the destruction of the One Ring, the salvation of Middle Earth, and unlikely heroes who do extraordinary things. But there's also all kinds of interesting subplots going on. I remember when I was talking to a mentor of mine, it was about a decade ago, and at that time I didn't have any meaningful, deep friendships. I had a lot of acquaintances, but other than my wife, no one really knew me at a soul level. And this guy, this mentor of mine, had a lot of deep friendships, and I was envious of it. And most of the things in my life I've learned by somebody giving me a good book and I go and I read a book. Give me a book on friendship and I'll go read a book on friendship and I'll, I'll learn, how, learn how to be a good friend. So I asked this guy, how, do you, how did you do that? How did you learn how to be a good friend? And he said, oh, easy. 
I've read Lord of the Rings every year for the past 20 years. I was like, didn't see that coming. One of the subplots of Lord of the Rings is friendship, no doubt inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien's deep friendship with the group of men they called the Inklings. I don't have time to talk about that. I wish I did, but you can nerd out, Google it later. But now here's the deal. The main plot line of the book of Ruth revolves around the sovereign kindness of God himself. His Hesed, as Rob talked about last week, his Hesed, his loving kindness, his one-way love that's bent towards normal people like Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. God chooses to devote himself and be committed to the redemption, the loving care of these rather insignificant people for no other reason than his own goodness. And we have to constantly keep that in mind. God did not look down and see these men and go, wow, they've got my attention, they're so outstanding, right? Ruth was a pagan, living in a pagan land, worshiping other gods, and God said, no, I'm going to choose to love her. So God, his love is a one-way love. And as Rob showed us last week, this is meant to display for us God's unmistakable kindness, his character, who he is in himself. He is kind. He pursues the lost. He loves the weakness, the weak. He knows our frame, and yet he chooses to love us anyways. But this week, I want to kind of take a step away from the main plot of this book, even though it still looms over the text. And I want to look I want to kind of inspect one of the subplots going on in Ruth. The subplot of how our relationship with God affects our manhood and womanhood. You could also call this kind of biblical manhood or biblical womanhood. Now, just to let you know right away, I am about to lean over the plate here and take one for the team. Uh, I'm kind of throwing myself down on the barbed wire and I'm hoping some of you would crawl across my body to true freedom, okay? Especially some of our kids, some of our young men and young women who are in this crazy culture and they're somehow trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman in this world? In other words, this is a hot button cultural issue that will likely make many of us upset especially if our view of manhood and womanhood are defined by something other than God's revealed word to us. Now, I know we come from all over the place. We are all over the map, more than likely, when it comes to our opinions on gender roles. What's a man supposed to be like? What's he supposed to do? What's a woman supposed to be like? What's she supposed to do? Many of you are already pushing back on that statement because you've been taught that all gender stereotypes are just a cultural construct passed down to us by a patriarchal society set on disempowering women. First off, I realize that I'm stepping into this and I'm going to be shot from the front and the back, okay? And I want to kind of agree with you in one sense, and disagree with you in another. Let me say that much of gender stereotypes and gender roles 
are actually, you're right, they actually are a cultural construct. If you go to Japan or China or Afghanistan or downtown Rock Island or downtown Chicago or, downtown, or, or Bettendorf, you're going to get a different view. You're going to get a different concept of what does it mean to be a man and to be a woman. That's true. But that does not mean that all gender stereotypes are a cultural construct or all gender roles are a cultural con- creation. God has revealed to us from his word his desire for us as men and his desire for you as women. It was going to be weird if I said us as women, so I said you. (laughs) He wants, here, listen, he wants men to be men and women to be men and women and (laughs) women, women, okay? I'm a little nervous where I'm going, okay? (laughs) All right. I'm dodging. I don't want all the bullets to hit me. I'm, do- I'm dodging this morning, all right? Now listen, in one place in the book of Corinthians, the apostle Paul writes this. One of my favorite verses and one that every mom and father should have memorized. It says this, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. <clears throat> See, Paul had a definition of manhood from Scripture, from God's revealed word. And he wasn't afraid to say, act like a man. I don't want to be afraid to say that either. Just because our culture has decided that it is no longer appropriate. See, the difficulty we have this morning is disentangling what is a cultural creation and what is a biblical ideal or a biblical creation. So to help us do that, I'm kind of kind of juxtapose for us two what I'm going to call cultural constructs when it comes to gender over and against the biblical ideal we see here in Ruth, okay? What are these two cultural constructs? One, I'm going to use the traditional idea of manhood and womanhood, traditional. Now, I know that might be concerning. And the other one I'm gonna use is what I'm gonna call a postmodern concept of femininity and masculinity. Both of these, I'm going to say, um, might have a sliver of truth, but their cultural construct meant to enslave you where the biblical ideal is meant to fit with reality and give you freedom, okay? So that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. Now, um, I got a long way to go, so let's get after it, okay? First thing we're gonna do is first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna take a look at Boaz and we're gonna kind of go back a little bit and, and check out the first couple chapters, just a little bit. Boaz is a great example for us of what it means to be a godly man. Now, I want you to hear that, godly man. I'm not saying this is all men. This is all all females. What I'm saying is, when you become a godly man, when you are brought in by the grace of God, God begins to change you to look more like himself. So what's true of his nature starts to become true of your nature. And so I'm not speaking to the world here. I'm not speaking necessarily to politics and, and all the. I'm speaking to the church. I'm speaking to what it means to be a man under the authority of God, okay? And a woman under the authority of God. 
okay? Now, just remember, when we get into this text, this, is, this takes place during the time of the judges, when, quote, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. That means, listen, when we read this, we can't just go like, oh yeah, all the dudes were like Boaz. They're just traditional men. Remember back in the day when men were men? Remember that? No, I don't actually, because I don't know if it's ever been that way, right? Ask your grandpa, right? Men used to be men back when? Well, that's what we're saying now. So how far do we trace back to find the time where men were actually men, right? It's a myth, right? There were no good old days. Maybe there was a few in the garden, okay? We got one chapter of that, (laughs) right? That's about it. From then on, we've had issues, okay? So that means, listen, here's the deal. Boaz was unique. Boaz was unique. He was a man among men. He was godly, a godly man amongst ungodly men, okay? He couldn't be labeled, quote, as traditional. Most of the men in his city were not godly men. He was unique. Boaz was different. He was a godly man in the midst of a culture full of selfish men who were doing what was right in their own eyes. So in the last chapter, chapter two, yeah, chapter two, we learned at least five things about Boaz. And it just happens uh, that, that I, I, I got five Ps for you on this, okay? I, I just, that's how it worked out, five Ps, okay? Uh, men, this is what it means to be striving for, or this, striving for biblical manhood. This is some ideals that we seek. Ladies, this is who you should be looking for in a partner. Parents, this is who you should be raising your your young men up into. This is the ideal for us, okay? Not a perfect ideal, but it's it's really good, Boaz. First off, we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 4 of Boaz. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, that means his employers, the people in his field, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Now, what is this? Boaz here is professing his faith. He is a man of faith. It almost sounds like this guy just had his family devotion or just had his daily devotion, right? He's entering the day. It's early. His workers are there. And the first thing he says is, the Lord be with you. What is he saying? He's realizing everything he has in life is on loan from God, okay? He is a vice regent, Right? He is a steward of everything that God, that God has given him. And he recognizes that as such, that who he is is a result of what God has done for him, the kindness that God has shown him. And so Boaz right away professes faith. Godly men profess their faith. All right? Pretty simple, right? Um, he wasn't trying to figure out life on his own terms. He wasn't trying to figure out manhood on his own. He was a son of the king. He was a child of God. Boaz was in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And he was committed to following God's ways and not his own. All right? Second thing, let's look at. So first, he professes faith. Secondly, look at verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth. Now, if you remember, Ruth was a recent convert. She was one of the... Rob did a great job last week of showing she was like on the bottom rung of society's hierarchy right? She was vulnerable. She was foreign. She didn't have a husband. She didn't have a child. She was 
She was on the bottom rung, and so she was very vulnerable, and she enters into this society, and she begins gleaning in the fields, which means she had a right to go in and pick up the scraps that was left over from the harvesters, okay? Now, Boaz is there, and Boaz sees this young, vulnerable woman, and this is what he says. Verse 8. Chapter two, verse eight. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Boaz, second thing, protects the weak. He protects the vulnerable. Boaz knew his culture. He knew that there were a lot of men out there who would see a vulnerable woman and would want to take advantage of her. So Boaz kept his eyes open for the vulnerable and he went out of his way to protect them from those who would likely take advantage of them. He said, all right, listen, you can stick in my field as long as you want because my field is safe. Why? Because I'm a godly man under the authority of God and I rule my household as a man under the authority of God. I'm, he's saying, I'm a godly man. And so I have, my, my field is protected under the sovereignty of God and under the sovereignty of my sub-vice regent here, right? So stick here, you'll be safe here. He protects young Ruth. Now, here's the other thing. Boaz is a man of God. And so when he's looking out over his field and he's looking at the available prospects of women in his field, right, in a sense, he's not just looking for who who looks the, the hottest. What he perceives is actually Ruth's character. Ruth's character gets his attention. Look in verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen, look, know that you are a worthy woman. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong one, aren't I? Is that right? 2.11. I'm sorry. I just jumped ahead. My bad. 2.11. But Boaz answered, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. So this is what he's doing here. He's looking at her and he says, you know what? I, am, I recognize there's something different about you. I recognize that you left your home, you left your land, you committed yourself to this, your mother-in-law, this new family of yours, and you stayed committed to her and, and took a huge risk. He's acknowledging her character, right? Verse 12. So I'm gonna say this. He professed faith, he protected the vulnerable, he perceived Ruth's godly character. Fourth, he prays for Ruth. Verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at this, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is so interesting. He's an oldly man, oh, an oldly man. He's an elderly man. He's a little bit older than Ruth. He sees her, he protects her. He says, you know what? I, I'm recognized something different in you that you committed yourself, not just to your mother-in-law, but to her God. And you've been converted. You've, you're no longer a Moabite. Now you're, you've been converted into the God, uh, under the God of Israel. And he's praying for Ruth. And he says this, 
Come under, this is so interesting, come under the wings of Yahweh. Come under the wings of God, that God will protect you. The sovereign God will protect you. Come under his wings. Now this part, is, this is where it's about to get very interesting. The last P here. Lastly, verses 14 through 18, I'm not gonna read it. Boaz provides for her. Right? He provides for her. He goes out of his way to make sure she can get as much she can from her field and that nobody messes with her and that she goes back to her mother-in-law full. If you remember, they went away empty and, or they went away full and they came back empty. They came back hungry. Well, now the exact opposite. They, she's going into the field empty and she's coming back full. That God is meeting her needs the sovereign God who's good and rules all is meeting her needs now through his vice regent, his steward, Boaz. Okay, do you see this? All of this is going on. Now here's what we should see. Boaz is both a man of faith and a man of action. He takes initiative. He works hard. He's getting after it. He's taking responsibility for himself and others. And this one honorable, godly man is a great blessing to his city. He's, as Rob said last week, he's renewing the city one act of loving kindness at a time. How do you renew the world? You renew cities. How do you renew cities? You renew your home. How do you renew home? One act of loving kindness at a time. Now this is a snapshot of biblical godly manhood. Boaz is acting like a man. He's operating out of love. He's being strong and using his strength to protect the vulnerable. He's standing firm in his faith in a society that's going crazy. Everybody's doing what they see is right in their own eyes. He's working hard to both spiritually provide for people. He's praying, he's blessing, he's public about his faith and also to provide for people physically, right? This is true masculinity, biblical masculinity. And I'm afraid that somehow our, our, our culture wants to say that this is somehow toxic masculinity. No, toxic masculinity preys upon the weak. And we've had plenty of examples of that in our culture. Men in power who prey on those underneath their authority. This is not what we see from Boaz. See, toxic masculinity seeks to exploit women for personal gain. Toxic masculinity is selfish. Ironically, toxic masculinity is also weak and passive, sitting back while the weak and vulnerable get taken advantage of. Biblical masculinity is different. I want you to, and I forgot to give you this, I'm sorry, but if you have your Bibles, go to Psalm 128. It's, it's actually one of my favorite songs. Psalm 128, I'm sorry, I forgot to give it to you. There's Bibles in the, you got your phones, get there quick. Here we go. Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. <clears throat> you shall eat the fruit 
of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Here's here's what the psalmist is saying. As we walk in the ways of the Lord, as we honor him and we live out our life the way he calls us to, we receive blessing from us. He blesses us. Now that it does not always mean everything's gonna be good in our life. We already know this. We should know this from Ruth, right? Really bad things have happened. It doesn't mean that nothing bad's going to happen, but there will be a blessing in the midst of it. Now let's, let's keep reading. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now what's he saying here? He's saying, Part of the blessing that we get from being godly men, it comes through our wife and our children. Right now, if I was preaching a text, if I was preaching a sermon just on Psalm 128, I might call it uh, how to drive your wife up the wall or something like that, right? Because this this is what he's saying right here. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Okay, here's what the the psalmist is saying. A godly man provides structure and security for his wife and children to grow and mature. If you know anything about a vine, you know that a vine has to have structure. A vine can only grow vertically if it has something to grow alongside of, whether that be lattice or whether it be another tree. But a vine flourishes when it has something to provide structure and security to. The same is true for the godly woman and children. That a godly husband is meant to provide the trellis for them to grow under his leadership, for them to flourish. Now listen, a trellis is not there to subjugate the vine. A trellis is not there to control the vine in any way. A trellis is there to provide support and structure so the vine can actually flourish and and grow fruit and carry the weight of the fruit that it's going to grow. The same is true within a godly marriage between a husband and wife. A wife should respond to the leadership of her husband. So the husband gives some kind of structure and stability to the home and that should enable the wife to flourish under that leadership and to carry weight and to carry responsibility and to to do what God's called her to do. It's almost like a dance. The work between structure and security of what a husband does and the flourishing of what a woman does, it's almost like a dance. And we're going to see it's an art. That's what I'm going to say. It's an art. It's not a box that's meant to box you in, ladies or men, right? It's more like a dance that once you learn the basics, you can kind of invent it on your own, right? You can kind of, it's like learning the the keyboard or learning piano. At first, it's all boring scales. I don't want to do this, right? Nobody wants to do that. But once you get the discipline of learning your scales, then you can mature into the jazz pianist who can just do whatever he wants to do, basically, within the rules, that are, the, rule, the music rules, whatever those things are, because I'm not musical. You know what I mean, <laughs> right? Now, listen, here's the, here's the problem. Our postmodern, where we are right now, culture wants us to reject all the rules, It wants us to reject biblical gender roles 
This idea of man doing support and structure, the woman flourishing around that. Our culture wants to reject that as traditional social constructs. We're taught to push away from that ideal. And what, what's happened? This has led to a lot of confusion. Men now are far more passive, unsure how to pursue a woman, unsure how to pursue a career, unsure how to make commitments and take on responsibility without being labeled toxic. And ladies, I'm afraid, have simply traded in one cultural gender stereotype for another. They've traded in, I won't be defined by a man or a husband or a home. They've rejected that stereotype and they've turned to, I will instead be defined by my career. Can I ask you, how is that liberating? There's a lot of talk these days about the, the gender pay gap discrepancy. And there, are, there, is a, there is some problems there. There is some unequality there. But if you get down into the details, you realize this. The two main reasons men make more money than women are, one, I'm just going to say it like this, they're willing to do dumb things. They climb towers. They, they dig gold in, the, you know, in Alaska. They fish on the Bering Sea. What am I saying? They take on high-risk jobs. That's, a, that's one of the major reasons that men are paid more. Second major reason, they work more hours. Now, what does that mean? They sacrifice family. They skip birthday parties. They skip kids' sports. They work more hours than the men. Now, not, not only the other fact that women have to usually take time off for having babies and such, and men don't. So listen, th those are not necessarily ideals that I think females should be, should be striving to. And here's the, here's the last one. Men also die five years earlier. Do we want our women to die five years sooner? Is that what we want? It, right? We, we can't just, men take on risky jobs. They work too much to, at an unhealthy pace and therefore they're paid more and yet they die five years sooner. We should not be wanting our women to reject finding their identity at home and find their identity in a husband and find their identity in having children and all this and now all of a sudden embrace what has traditionally been the way a man finds his identity and that's working outside the home and giving up five years of his life to do so. It's not liberating to trade one cultural definition of womanhood for another cultural definition of womanhood. Ladies, there's a different ideal. There's something better and it's the godly ideal of womanhood. Ruth gives us a good example of what this looks like. And remember, she's a recent convert. We would say today that Ruth is a baby Christian and yet we still can learn a lot from her because when you're saved, God does a real work of infusing his grace in you and changing you. And so we can see that in Ruth's life. First off, in chapter one, if we go all the way back to chapter one, verse 16, we see that Ruth 
profess his faith. I got to go fast. I'm not going to go there. She professes her faith. So she puts her faith in God. Where you go, I go. I will go. Remember, she says, tells Naomi, and your God will be my God. Secondly, she proclaimed a devotion, listen, to her family in, in 117, that she's an honorable woman who's going to stick by her mother-in-law and not go try to just find a husband on her own back in Moab. Third, here we go. She puts in work. In chapter two, verse three, we see Ruth, when the going got tough, she got going, right? Like that's the reality. She saw, all right, I need to provide for my family. I don't have a man. I don't have a husband. I don't have a father. I am in a low, I'm a low status in the society. I've got to go to work. And so in verse three, chapter two, she rolls up her sleeves. She goes out in the field and she works hard. Ruth isn't lazy. Ruth isn't passive. Ruth isn't fearful, or if she is fearful, she's still courageous in the midst of that fear and willing to get after it and go to work. She saw what needed to be done and got after it. She was industrious and hardworking. But here's the deal. She wasn't trying to find her identity in her work. Now, how do I know that? She was working to provide for her family and honor the Lord. She wasn't trying to find her identity. How do I know that? Because, listen, what we see in chapter three, when Ruth's mother-in-law comes to her and says, listen, I've got a plan. <laughs> She's willing to listen to the advice of Naomi. When it came time to lay the basket down and pursue a relationship with Boaz. Now listen, if she was, had this postmodern idea of femininity that a woman should have her own paycheck and a woman should have her own bank account and a woman should be able to provide for herself and shouldn't look to a man to provide any of those things, when Naomi said, here, listen, I got an idea how to put the basket down, she would have said, oh, no, I'm not stooping that low. I'm my own woman. I like my basket. I can go out. I can put my, I know exactly what I'm going to provide. I don't need no man for anything but that's not what we see. We see her listen to the wisdom of her mother-in-law and it's about to get crazy, okay? Look at verse, and this is what I mean. This, this is what I want us to see. This is a biblical structure meant to provide freedom. It is not a box that's meant to lock you in and we're gonna see that. Verse one, then Naomi her mother-in-law, chapter three, verse one, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? It's the same thing she said in chapter one. She wants the best for her daughter. She doesn't want her daughter have to be out in the fields working every day. If that's what she wants, she can, but she wants rest for her. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. Now, Jesus famously said that we should be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. Naomi is wise as a serpent. She knows the ways of the world. Now listen, 
we are a church that believes in the sovereignty of God, that God gets what he wants, God accomplishes his will at all times. And one of the foolish notions that people have when they first learn of the sovereignty of God is, oh, so that means I just sit back and do nothing. And God just does everything. No. The brilliance of the sovereignty of God is the way he works out his sovereignty through the choices of his people. And so what we see Naomi here, Naomi's aware of the providence of God. She's aware of the sovereignty of God, but she's also aware that God answers prayers through people. God answers prayers through our own actions. So she sees this work of providence. Okay, so we've landed in our relative's uh, field. Boaz has had favor already on Ruth. Okay, I can see where this is going. He says, she says, Ruth, come here. Take a shower. <laughs> Anoint yourself. That means put perfume on. And here's the deal about men these days. During the time of the harvest, they would go to this place and they would winnow the barley together. They, it was like a big circular place. It was downwind. So they could break open the, the barley and the good stuff would fall and the chaff would be blown away because in the valley, the wind would blow through. And these men would stay there and listen, they would eat. It's harvest time, man. It's harvest time. They would eat good. They would drink alcohol. They would have a good night and then they would sleep by their harvest. Why? So thieves couldn't come in at night and steal their harvest. So mama knows this and mama knows men and mama sees Ruth. Okay, we can work with this. I can work with this. Clean it up, right? Put on your good outfit. Put your church outfit on, right? Put some perfume on. And now here's what I want you to do. Now listen, men and women, if you, if you parents, if you watch Pixar, you know, as you're watching Pixar, they drop nuggets in it just for you, right? That the kids don't get it, and it's a little like a euphemism or something. You're like, <laughs> the kids don't get it, but you get it. That's what's going on in this story. The Hebrew listeners are perking up already because this is full of double entendre. This is full of, you're going to do what? Where? A woman is going to sneak down where all the men are working, and when he falls asleep, you're going to go uncover his feet? I'm wanting, I won't get into that. You're going to uncover his feet. You're going to be laying there in the middle of the night when he wakes up and whatever he says to do, you're to do. Seems a little risque, right? I did not read this chapter and I kissed dating goodbye, right? Courtship 101, no. Listen, there's freedom, if you're a godly man, if you're a godly woman, there's freedom when you've got that kind of discipline, that kind of character, there's a freedom that comes after it. Let's keep reading. Verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman was laying at his feet. And he said, who are you? 
And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now listen, do you remember Boaz's prayer? Boaz's prayer in chapter two was, Ruth, come under the wings of the Almighty. At my house, you will be protected because we're under the authority of God here. I will watch over you and protect you. And Naomi's like, well, let's just see if you really mean that. Why don't you spread your wings over me? Now, what's going on right here? First off, Ruth is risking her reputation. What she's doing right now is proposing marriage. She's, propo she's proposing to Boaz right now. That's what this whole deal is. Uncovering his feet, laying down. Will you spread your wings over me? Now, is this traditional? Like, you just want to take it back some archaic, you know, subjugate women. No, 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 no. This is a 3,000-year-old story. Can we say this is before traditional? <laughs> and she has enough freedom to follow the instructions of her mother-in-law and go and literally propose marriage to Boaz. Now, why is she proposing marriage? Why didn't Boaz propose to her? We're going to see later on. Well, actually, let me, let me just keep reading. We, it'll show us itself. At mid, uh, verse 9, he said, no, no, verse 10. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What he's saying is, there was plenty of eligible bachelors out there that were richer than me and younger than me and you didn't go after any of those men, but instead you did what was honorable for Naomi, honorable for your family and you're seeking out me who is the quote kinsman redeemer for, or a kinsman redeemer for your family. Now keep reaching, re reading. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. So he's like, I accept. <laughs> But where's my ring? No, uh, keep, keep going. I accept. Now listen, I will do for you all I ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. So what she's doing is rather risque, but she's not a risque woman, okay? She's a worthy woman. And now it's true, look, that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Here's the problem. More than likely, Boaz, he ain't no dummy. He saw her, she looked good. She's an honorable woman. He probably thought, I would like to marry that woman. But he knew there was a redeemer nearer than him. And what, what that means is in ancient Israel, the kinsman redeemer, we've talked about this in the past, was the closest blood male relative. And if you died, he was responsible for, for paying off your debts, for uh, protecting you, for providing for you, and ultimately for providing an heir for you. So if you died, died childless, that closest blood relative was required to literally uh, help you have a baby. That's what, so that you could have somebody that could support you as, you as you grew up. And Boaz, as an honorable, godly man, realized there's somebody actually in front of me in line. I am a kinsman redeemer, but I'm not the nearest relative. So it would be dishonorable for me to propose marriage to you. Now see, this is the structure. There's a structure that provides freedom for the woman to adjust what she's doing based on who the man is. He couldn't in all, in, in all honor go and ask her hand of marriage. So she's like, well, women don't do that. 
Is that what she says? She says, oh, I get why he's doing that. I'll do it. I'll step up. I'll risk my reputation. I'll risk the fear of being heartbroken and told no. I'll do this. I'll take initiative. So Ruth does it. Now, and she does everything just like her mother says. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet. No, verse 12. It's true that I'm redeemer. There's a redeemer nearer than I. Verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He, he doesn't want to risk her reputation either. Verse 15. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley. Most commentators say that's about 40 pounds of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, her mother-in-law said, how'd you fare my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait my daughter until you learn how the manner turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, she is willing to risk stereotypes. She's willing to risk your reputation. And what does the Lord do? The Lord piles blessing upon her. Now, I believe there are a lot of lies that we believe. Whoa, whoa, okay. That is so weird. That scared me. I believe there's a lot of lies that, that, we're, that, that we believe that keep us from the blessing. Can you imagine if she would have said, no, no, Naomi, that's a crazy plan. I'm not doing it. That's beneath me. I'm not doing it. There's some postmodern lies that women believe that can keep you from a blessing. One, I don't need a man to be happy. First off, we all need Jesus, and he's a man, so there's that. <laughs> Secondly, if you have the gift of singleness and you don't desire to be in a relationship with a man, that is okay. You should be happy with you, Jesus, and your missional community. But most women desire to be married, and that means you do need a man to be happy, and that is okay. That's how God designed us. It's not good for us to be alone. And then what we see in this text is her being willing to admit that, like, I desire to be married. I don't want just a career. I don't want just provision. I want my physical needs met, yes. I want my spiritual needs met by God. Yes, that's already happened. But I also want my relational needs met. I want a husband. So I'm willing to pursue that. And listen, in the midst of this too, we also learn some new things about Boaz. Boaz remains a man of integrity. Men, listen up. He doesn't give in to sexual temptation here. Right? He's un he ate good and he drank good the night before and yet he still has his wits about him. When a woman appears at his feet, he doesn't do what he naturally wants to do. He honors Ruth and Naomi. He's not just after a quick sexual escapade. He chooses God's way over his own way. 
And this is interesting because this could cost him. What that means is that he might not get what he wants. He might not get Ruth. He says, I accept your proposal, but we've got a problem. There's another guy in line. But I'm willing to trust God's sovereignty and his providence by not taking what's not mine right now. I'm willing to say no to my flesh and my desires right now to honor God, first and foremost. See, he chooses commitment. He chooses covenant. He chooses hased. He's not a taker. He's a redeemer. Now listen, the questions remain over this text because it ends at or chapter three. We don't know what's coming up yet. Maybe Boaz's restraint and integrity will keep him from getting what his, heart's de- his heart desires. Maybe God's way isn't the best way. Should he act like Elimelech and take matters into his own hands? Remember? We don't know what tomorrow brings, so let's get what we can today and enjoy this moment. Now listen, there's postmodern lies that men believe too that keep us from a greater blessing. One, I don't need commitment to be happy. Our culture has been selling us the lie that sex without commitment can make us happy. So pornography and HBO and network sitcoms, all are sending this message. We're making it quicker and easier by putting it on our phones and apps like Tinder and Snapchat and other hookup tools to try to make this as easy as possible. And they say all your guilty feelings, all your shameful feelings, that's all a result from just hangover from the patriarchy, hangover from some old-timey traditional way of viewing the body and reviewing sexuality. It's not true. The users of these apps, those addicted to pornography, the men and women who practice sex outside of the covenant of marriage are actually far less happy, far more anxious, far more depressed, far more lonely statistically than those married with children who attend church together regularly. Men, you might not know it, you might not understand it, your desire for sex is actually a desire for intimacy. It's a desire to give yourself to a one woman in the covenant of marriage self-sacrificially for a lifetime. That breaks down if it's not inside the covenant of marriage. It becomes selfish when not in marriage. It's about you getting something from her instead of honoring her and cherishing her and doing with your bodies what you've already done with the rest of your life, and that is making a commitment. We are covenanting together. We're gonna have one last name. We're gonna have one bank account. We're gonna have one home. We're gonna have one family, and we're gonna be one body. Doing with your bodies what you've already done with the rest of your life. Now listen, recently several sexually promiscuous men in our culture have come to this same realization. Men like Dax Shepard, Russell Brand, Kanye West, and Justin Bieber Beaver have all pushed away from promiscuity because it wasn't giving them the happiness that they were hoping for. We should learn from their experience and come back to the truth of God's word that has been telling us this all along. Men, we are made for commitment. 
We are made for covenant. We are made for responsibility, structure, and security. We are like trucks that drive straighter when they've got a load in the back. We were, married, mar- we were made to carry the weight of responsibility. Responsibility and commitment isn't something to be feared and to be rejected. It's to be embraced. It's a key piece of biblical manhood. So, young men, step up and take responsibility. If you're single, get a dog. Start small. <laughs> get a fish, maybe. Take responsibility, care for it, protect it, watch over it. Pursue a woman, join a missional community, serve in the church, serve in the kids' ministry. Take on responsibility. You need it and you'll find you don't feel like you're ready for it. You're not, you're not. It's like when you put weight on the bar, you're not ready for it, but by doing it, it makes you ready. It makes you stronger. That's how you build up into being a godly man. Now, here's the question for us all today. I know I'm late. Male or female? <sighs> Have you submitted your masculinity or your femininity to God? Have you given yourself to Him totally and said, Whatever you want for me, that's what I want. Why? Because God, you're good. Your character is good. You want to do me good. And so I don't know which way I should go. I don't know what it looks like for me to be a woman or it looks like for me to be a man, but I don't trust my culture. And maybe I don't even trust history, but I trust you. So would you show me in your word, what does it mean for me to be a godly woman and godly man? I want to be the man you desire for me to be. I want to be the woman you desire for me to be. Or are you still trying to circumvent God? And do manhood or womanhood on your own. Here's the truth. Freedom is found only in Christ. Listen, that traditional idea of male and female, it's a legalism. It's meant to keep you in a box. That postmodern idea of malehood and femalehood, it's legalism. Meant to keep you in a box. But the biblical ideal is freedom. It's freedom. Are you free enough to be a godly man or woman? Or are you enslaved to traditional or postmodern concepts of masculinity and femininity? Listen, postmodern women are not free enough to stay at to sacrifice their career and stay at home with their kids. Postmodern men are not free enough to make a commitment and a covenant to one woman for the rest of their life. A traditional woman is not free enough to actually step into areas that her husband might be weak in and lead and do what we saw Ruth do. I would never. It's beneath me. Traditional man might not be secure enough in his own manhood to allow his wife to excel at something that he's not particularly good at. 
In Boaz and Ruth, we see a beautiful picture of godly manhood and womanhood. And what's the key of it all? They are both in a vital relationship with God. His love towards them is what defines their love towards each other. His grace and mercy gives them the freedom to dance. Provides the structure and then the freedom inside that structure to grow and mature and excel at whatever it is that she's going to excel at. The question for us this morning as I close is this. Can you trust God with your life, with your future, with your relationships, like Boaz and Ruth do today. I get it. There's many reasons. You look at many circumstances in your life and there's many reasons not to trust him. The same was true for Ruth. The same was true for Boaz. The same was true for Jesus. Jesus had every reason humanly possible to not trust the Father. And yet he did all the way to his betrayal and crucifixion. Why? Because God loves you. Because God looked down the corridors of time and said, you will be mine. He chose to put his hesed on you. And Jesus did that on the cross for all of us. See, when, when that becomes a reality, I no longer have to define myself by what the world says I should define myself by. His love is now what defines me. I want to pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would breathe freedom. Freedom for the men and the women in this room to be who you've called us to be, to do what you've called us to do. I'm reminded, I think it was John Bunyan who said, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Father, you give us freedom that we can't even imagine in the gospel. Jesus, you've earned it all for us. You've done it all for us. I pray now that you would save those in this gathering that you'd bring us to repentance in ways that we failed, being the men you've called us to be and the women you've called us to be, and you would inspire us to strive towards the ideal we see here in Boaz and Ruth. Do this for your glory and our good and the good of our city and the good of our families, the good of our children, the good of our country. <clears throat> Father, as we come before your table this morning, I just pray, once again, we get to experience your grace that's gone before us, the body that's been broken for us in the bread and the blood that's been shed for us in the cup. May we eat this in honor and remembrance of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.